Hi, this is Joe Shannon. I'm a lawyer, a husband, a father of six kids, and I also uh, host a podcast called Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. Please consider listening to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, and any other folks that host podcasts. Just Google Joe Shannon and podcast and you'll find it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Very excited to um, interview John Hatami, um, who came to all of our living rooms and through Netflix with a just a you know a, a very sad story, um, but a necessary one uh, about you know, our children and our, and the future of our children in this country and how important it is that each person has a role in taking care of uh, our, our country's children. So I'm really, really thrilled to welcome you, uh, John. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really appreciative that, that you're having me on the show. Thank you so much. Well, my, uh, the gal that produced our show, Sydney, um, uh, Bettino had, when she saw the Netflix series, says, I want this guy on our show because he's a true guy that's a stand-up guy. He's a dad. He's a lawyer. He's, he's, he's all that. And, you know, I like the public servant part of you, too. Um, I mean, you're a military guy. You grew up in, uh, you were born in New York, grew up in California, but then you joined the military. We're in the military police. Then you end up going to college, getting a degree, and then going to law school in Nebraska. So you've been all over the country, this great country. Then you went back to L.A. What, what, what made you want to go back to, to L.A. after being in Nebraska? Uh, <laughs> one, I, I love California. Um, I mean, I love Nebraska, too. I had really good times there. Um, but I don't like the cold, uh, and it gets pretty cold there. Uh, New York gets pretty cold, too, but Nebraska gets very cold and windy. Uh, I like the beach. Uh, I like to surf, uh, and it's nice because you can also go skiing here too. So it's a it's a really great state because you know two hours one way you're at the beach, two hours the other way you you know you're in the mountains. Um, even though I was born in New York, uh, I'm, I'm I think I'm mostly a California kid. Uh, I grew up out here. This is my home. Uh, um, there's a lot of issues with California, but in general, I love I love being here and working here. How far are you from the beach? Um, I'm about 45 minutes, so about not too bad, you know, uh, about 45 minutes from the beach. Uh, we live in the suburbs because um, it's better schools for the kids. Um, I also don't make enough money to live by the beach, but I, I wouldn't mind if, if, if I could, but we're about 45 minutes. Yeah, so just a little backstory. I grew up on the West Coast, uh, but on the, so I grew up in eastern Washington in this place called Yakima, Washington, which is a, it's about a 50,000 uh, person town when I was growing up as a high desert type place and uh, ended up uh, in Chicago because I went to law school out in uh, that area and met my wife who's 100% Italian and she was kind of connected to her family uh, big time so we ended up in Chicago but I'm taking this on the road I'm in Seattle uh, this week and my um, another connection that we have here is my father was a social worker and one of his jobs for I want to say 10 or 15 years with keeping kids out of abusive homes. In fact, um, I got a picture of him right here. So this is my father. Wow. And he was, so uh, 98 years old. He just passed away last Friday. 
but he's one of the heroes too uh, that, that really did the work that you're doing and that what a lot of these great public servants are doing. And so I, I had this connection that I said, oh, listen, I want to interview John just because I know how important it is that the people that came into Gabriel's life could have made a, dif a difference. And so I want to talk to you about a number of things, but you know, I want to talk to you about you know, kind of what makes you tick, what makes you effective as a lawyer, what kind of habits do you have, what kind of future do you look at, a lot of stuff. Hopefully we can jam it in here, but um, I wanted to just start the conversation off with, you, you worked your way up to end up being involved in this case, and that was a long, long trial, wasn't it, John? It was. First of my condolences for your, for your dad. I'm very sorry for your loss. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Hey, listen, 10 kids. I'm number nine. My my dad was the best all-time dad. Like I said, a social worker. Came home at five o'clock. You know, we hang out, we talk. We, I was tail to tail end, so we were buddies at the end. Lived with my sister until he was 98, and, and he had five of his kids, four or five of his kids praying the rosary with him when he died in, in my sister's house. So it was all good. It's all, we're going to do his we're going to do his service tomorrow, uh, graveside because uh, they're not allowing funerals up here in Washington State. But yeah, so you know it's it's all good. It was, it's a really I'm, I, I was blessed to have two parents that were basically saints and 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 really blessed that way. But my dad, I tell you, he had some stories to tell about when, when he was a social worker, you know, all anonymous, obviously, but just so thrilled to be able to keep some of these kids you know, out of harm's way. But I want to talk to you about that. So you got involved in this case with Gabriel Fernandez. First of all, that must have been quite a burden on you to accept the responsibility of that case at such a, a young age for a lawyer in my book. Yeah, it, the I tell a lot of people it was just... Um, I'll never forget Gabriel for a lot of different reasons, but um, one of them was just in the office. I hadn't been a prosecutor for that long to get a case that big. Um, so um, in Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, we have so many cases. Um, you can get pretty big and important cases early on in your career. Um, I'm not really sure I realized how big the case was when I got it, and maybe that was a good thing. Um, and, um, I was working up in Antelope Valley, which is sort of the outskirts of, uh, LA County. Um, and a lot of young prosecutors work up there because a lot of people don't want to, uh, for all sorts of different reasons. It's kind of far, uh, from the city. And so, um, I happened to be the most experienced prosecutor, uh, doing child abuse or domestic violence type cases. And so that's how I ended up getting the case. Um, but I think me not being in the office for a long period of time, I think was a good thing because I, I really just handled the case at first kind of like any other case, uh, just because I didn't realize media-wise and just importance-wise how important the case was. Um, um, uh, so I think that was sort of a, a good thing at the beginning. But it was a long journey, that case. Um, you're talking about five years from beginning to end. Um, so really long journey in my career uh, being a prosecutor. Um, also around the same time, uh, my wife gave birth to our son, our first child. And so that was sort of um, 
uh, a tough situation because um, November 2012, my son was born. Uh, the case happened in May 2013. And during that time, my wife was on patrol. So she was working two to 10. Um, it's called the PM shift. And so, you know, I'd come home, I'd pick John up from daycare, and then, you know, I'd give him a bath and feed him and everything. And I was sort of, I was doing all the dad, you know, duties, mom, dad duties during that time. Um, and my wife wouldn't get home to about 12 o'clock uh, midnight. And so hand, dealing with that case and, and then dealing with being a first time dad, um, there was a lot of challenges, a lot of um, emotional challenges uh, with the case. Um, and just being a young prosecutor, just not having to handle a death penalty case or a case that big, um, um, there was a lot of challenges. And then the case got moved to Los Angeles. So we'd commute a lot from uh, Antelope Valley Courthouse to Los Angeles Courthouse uh, for the case. Uh, I also, that was my first grand jury. I had never done a grand jury before. I didn't even know we had grand juries. So it's funny, I, I give this story, like, you know, in LA, we do prelims, but we don't do grand juries, we do preliminary hearings. Mm -hmm. So uh, even though I was born in New York, um, where New York obviously has grand juries, I just didn't know that there was grand juries. Even when I was a DA for a long period of time, I didn't know until somebody told me, oh, you know, you can go to the grand jury. I was like, oh, we have grand juries. And so I didn't even know that. Wow. Uh, so, so you, I looked at your, your resume and you were a civil lawyer like me for a while before you went into the DA's office. And, you know, I always tell folks that, that are thinking about becoming lawyers and um, is to just go around at different uh, places and see what feels right to you. And it sounds like you did that and then you finally found out what felt right. I, you're totally right. Um, I think, it's hard when you're going to law school, and I really, really enjoyed law school, uh, but it's hard when you're going to law school to figure out what you want to be. Um, I sort of had an idea when I was getting out of the army that I wanted to do something with children, but I really wasn't sure what that was going to be. Um, and then even in law school, I really didn't, I didn't know. It's hard to kind of figure out what you want to do and, and what you can and can't do. You, you just, I mean, you learn about the history of the law, but you don't really learn about what type of lawyer you want to be. Right. Um, and so I clerked for a judge for a year uh, for the Court of Appeals, which was a really, really fun. Um, and then I did civil uh, for between two and three years, both in uh, Los Angeles and in New York. Um, and uh, it just, it wasn't rewarding, I think, for me. Um, um, I just felt um, a lot of what I was doing had dealt with money and people arguing over money. Um, and, and not to say that it's not an important job, but I don't know for me, um, I thought sometimes, and I'm religious, so I thought sometimes, does God really want me to do this? Is this what my purpose is? Yeah. Um, and um, just by, I think, luck, or maybe God was looking out for me or something, um, I found that the DA's office was hiring. And I was actually thinking about maybe becoming a police officer um, or, or getting the FBI. So I was kind of looking at that too, um, probably more the FBI, um, just to help people, to do something with people. Um, and, but uh, the DA's office was a perfect fit. That's um, perfect. So how, how does your faith life fit into your, into your professional life? 
Um, so that's interesting. My mom, and so I was raised Catholic. My mom's Catholic, um, but I'm Lutheran now. Um, it was just, I think it was easier for me and for Roxanne because uh, it's hard to get married Catholic. It, it, there's a lot of requirements. Um, mm -hmm. And so Lutheran is, there's a lot of similarities between being Lutheran and being Catholic. And so uh, we have a church here called Christ Lutheran that we go to. Um, my children were baptized there. Um, um, it's what I tell people is I believe it's important to believe that there's something bigger than us. Um, I tried to be open to any type of religion anybody wants to practice because I think that's important. But I think it's important to believe that there's something bigger um, than us. Um, and I think it's also important to my job because, you know, a lot of times in my job, you know, we're dealing with what we can do on this planet as humans. And sometimes it doesn't turn out maybe the way you want it to. Um, um, we don't always end up getting justice for our victims. Um, and that's just the way life is. But I think inside me, and I try to tell victims and family members, I think there's something bigger than us. And so I believe that people will have to face whoever you believe God is, uh, when the time is, is your time. And so I think that for me, it gives me good strength that even if I do lose a case, and hopefully I don't, but even if I do lose a case, um, I have that, that faith to believe that I think still the right outcome will happen, maybe not on this planet, but, but, but somewhere else. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I, I'm totally with you. I, I think, you know, um, you know, faith plays a large part of my, my practice as well. I, so in my practice is, is dealing with, uh, I represent people in my law firm life um, that are in horrific crashes and all that type of stuff and wrongful death cases. And it's just so sad, these situations these people are in. Um, but, you know, I, you know, all the strength that I get from my, my life as a father and as a law, I'm running a law firm all of that strength comes it's, it's god given and it's you know the the step that that it, for me is to make is that i'm very grateful for all the gifts especially you know my my parents my family my my beautiful wife my my six kids um and then everybody that's on my team that works works with me i mean they're, they're all a gift and my job is to help everybody with their gifts and so i think there's a really practical side to the faith too that what you so eloquently said is that hey you know it's about the fight it's about putting forth the best effort you can in the fight you're not going to control who wins and loses the fight you're gonna do the best you job you can which you know obviously in gabriel's case i mean you had a lot of different things i mean i told my clients i said listen I, you know, I will fire you if you lie to me. I, I cannot be fighting two, two different places, but you didn't even have a big part of the file in Gabriel's case, which is a kind of a tough place to be fighting two different areas. How is that, how is that going? Is, that, is the relationship mending between you and the folks that you work for? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's a real, I think, important question. Um, my wife being uh, yeah. in the sheriff's department. Um, I have a lot of friends, you know, who are police officers just because, you know, my job, 
um, who I, I work really close with a lot of homicide detectives, both in LAPD and LASD. Um, and uh, it was really tough um, because before that, I, I will say, hands down, anything I ever asked for LAPD or LASD, they gave it to me. And I'm the prosecutor, right? So it's like, I never really felt, even though I would see some documentaries and some movies and things that were happening, for me personally, uh, I, I always felt that they were always honest and they had integrity. And if I asked for anything, they would give it to me. And we were always, you know, upfront with everything. I never felt that anybody was like, hiding anything from me. This was the first time that I started asking for something that right away I felt that some, there was a problem, that they were hiding something from me. And I think that that was really, really difficult um, um, and caused a lot of problems, um, major problems during the pendency of the case. Um, I lost a lot of friends. Um, a lot of people had a lot of issues with that. Um, I think time heals everything. I, I really do. Some things it doesn't, but most things it does. I think most of the police officers not only realized that I did the right thing, but they realized that was the right thing to do. Um, most police officers involved in the situation have apologized. Um, most people didn't understand stuff that my wife was going through. Um, I'm now helping to train uh, new sheriff's recruits. I just did a class two weeks ago, uh, over a hundred uh, brand new sheriff's deputies. Um, and I went, I have a three hour uh, class or a PowerPoint on patrol techniques, uh, testimony techniques and child abuse techniques. And so I do believe we've, we're coming around, people are coming around now to realizing that um, uh, it was, I did the right thing and it was the right thing to do. Um, but it took a long time. Um, you know, when you're going through it, especially in 2016 and 2017, it was, that was bad. Um, there was a lot of like, uh, my wife was going through a lot of stuff. I was going through a lot of stuff. People were being really mean. Um, people had threatened my wife. Um, they had the captain call her in and say, hey, if people don't roll out and help you, you need to let me know. Um, it was, it was really emotionally like, it was hard. Like I couldn't understand. I, I didn't understand, I, you know, when you're doing the right thing, it's hard to understand why, why is this happening? But I think you can see in all these different police issues that are happening and some are even happening recent. I think there, there, there is this culture where most of the good police officers are willing to kind of cover up or hide the small few who do bad things because they don't want the media to, to show this information. So supposedly they would look bad um, and they would get embarrassed. Um, but I think I always try to tell people, it's not the people who bring out information that are embarrassing anybody. It's the people who do it. When you do something, you're embarrassing yourself. I don't embarrass anybody. I just put out the information. But I think that what I try to teach police officers, why do you want a small group of bad people inside your department to infect everybody else? Um, and, I, and I think it's important for people to see that. But most police officers are good people. I, I really believe that. You know, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I, and I you know, the thing is, um, you know, as, as lawyers, we all make mistakes too. And, you know, you're right that when you do make a mistake, you've got to lead with, 
hey, I made a mistake and I'm sorry. And then it's up to us also to forgive people when they make mistakes. Unfortunately, when you have a situation that was so many repeated mistakes in Gabriel's case, you know, I'm glad that you made the, the next move, which was I thought the proper move was moving for the law so that could, there could be some restitution for some of these kids that, you know, some, some non-economic restitution, which, you know, listen, I, so I'm in the, the business of restitution, basically, with, you know, with what I do. And so the non-economic part of anybody's life is way more important. I mean, do you actually work so you can pay your medical bills or your lost wages? No, you, you work so you can spend time with the people you care about and then be, get, grow old with your wife and, or your, you know, your husband and then see your grandkids and you know, all that type of stuff. That's, that's worth a lot of money. So I'm really pumped that you, that you decided to, to jump in and say, listen, let's, let's make it so that there's some restitution for, for kids if something happens to them. Tell us a little bit about that law. So it's real important, like what you said. I mean, since I, I've worked civil um, uh, and you have to understand to make somebody whole, especially in our society, to help them out, especially if they've been harmed. Um, you need to do things monetarily to help them, especially you're talking about maybe a lot of underprivileged children um, uh, who go through major either physical or sexual abuse. Um, they need to be made whole. And, and in order to do that, you, know, you need to, to, to uh, get monetary damages for them. Um, and so it's incredibly important um, as a prosecutor, not only to help victims in court get justice on the criminal aspect of it. My job is also healing. And, and I think part of the healing process uh, is to look out for, for victims and their family members and make sure even after the case is done that they're, they're taken care of. I think a lot of prosecutors, sometimes the case is done and then that's it. But you know, they have to still go on with their life. And so, so to provide them with um, a counseling, to provide them with um, uh, living expenses, to provide them with uh, expenses that they can't find a job, uh, to provide them with expenses because of emotional damage, it's very, very important. Um, and uh, I, do, I had seen before that law, a lot of times where judges were either not awarding the proper restitution or striking, uh, restitution amounts because they claimed it wasn't supported by the law and so we really i really saw an area where the law needed to be changed um, where does that money come from john um so the money most of the time for for the law i created comes from the actual defendant so whoever the defendant is that person is uh, uh liable both criminally and you know civilly basically uh to make the victim whole um, we do have uh, a restitution fund throughout the state that also helps victims, but the law I created has to do with defendants in general. Uh, the so that could be that could be, for example. So it, would it just say though that after during a criminal case, you could have the criminal phase, and then would the judge determine the restitution or the jury determine the restitution? The judge determines it, um, and with the help of both myself and usually if they have a civil attorney. Many of my victims usually uh, get a civil attorney sometime around the end aspect of the case because of restitution. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the civil attorneys know me and I, and I work with them, I bring them into court. Um, uh, you, I have new cases now where I actually try to work with the civil attorneys and I let them sit in the, in the, the table with me if they want to get certain things like 
transcripts or information because it helps with their case. It's sometimes very hard for them to get discovery. And so yeah. I do to assist with that because uh, it's a very important aspect of, of making a victim whole. But um, uh, it makes it easier too for the civil attorney if they can get a restitution amount awarded by a, a judge where you know it's actually an order from a judge. It does help. Um, yeah. So, but the judge, the judge makes the restitution amount. So one question I had for you. So there was the part of the documentary that kind of hit home with me was, so my daughter is a, um, she was a, a junior high teacher and now she's a high school teacher, but the teacher that was reporting all the damage done to, to Gabriel and, you know, you could tell that it was just, she reported it and she thought something would happen and it really never did. What kind of things do you think that a teacher needs to do in in those types of situations to make sure that a doctor actually sees the little boy or little girl? That's a really good question. I think Jennifer Garcia, the teacher in the Gabriel case, I, I don't think she'll ever, she'll never forget Gabriel and she'll never forget that incident. I think it will stick with her forever. Um, it's a tough situation. Um, hindsight being 2020, some of the things I try to tell teachers is if you do contact either CPS or DCFS, whatever your Child Protective Services uh, uh, organization is called within your state, and you feel that you're not getting the proper response, call the police. Um, so, because the police um, has another aspect to child abuse. DCFS or CPSS, CPS works um, on one aspect of child abuse, but law enforcement works on a totally different aspect of child abuse. They look at it as more, is this a crime or not? All right. So it's good to have two organizations um, investigate child abuse. I think one thing that Jennifer looks back on that she wished she would have done is called the police, because um, that may have made a difference in the case. But I always tell all teachers, teachers are mandatory or mandated reporters um, in most states, uh, they are in California. And it's just suspected child abuse. It doesn't mean that there's actual child abuse that you suspect based right. on observations or whatnot that a child is abused. Um, you should call the hotline and, and uh, go through the proper procedures um, and so there can be an investigation. I know sometimes it's uncomfortable for individuals, but uh, it's better to do that to save a child um, if you can. And then if they're not getting response that they want. I think calling the police is another appropriate uh, recourse. Um, and I think it's uh, something that teachers should do. Um, uh, and then obviously, I think also at least document it or, or make a report to their administration, if it's the principal, vice principal, whoever that is, without divulging, you know, you know, uh, a sense of information, but at least report it up her chain of command. Um, so now you have another layer of somebody else and somebody else's eyes looking at it to maybe think, hey, maybe we need to do something different uh, or do something else. Right, over a report rather than under report. That sounds right. like the move. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, hey, listen, I, you know, one of the parts of the documentary I, I really liked too was, you know, that, you know, I, I felt bad for Gabriel's father who was incarcerated at the time. Have you had contact with him uh, since this all went down? So, uh, Chris. Um, I'm very close to Chris, I mean, uh, I got Chris, uh, Alejandro, I'm very close to Alejandro's brother, which is Chris. 
Chris and Alejandro, and then you have uh, Arnold or Arnaldo. So Alejandro and Chris are his brothers, and I'm, I'm really close with them, and I talk to them a lot. Um, I just talked to Chris last week. Uh, Chris is, he is the foster parent or legal guardian for both of the siblings for Gabriel Ezekiel and Virginia. Arnaldo, the last time I talked to him, which is uh, Gabriel's dad, was the sentencing um, because he, he got reincarcerated. Uh, mm. He, um, there were some other things that he committed. Um, and as a result, there was cases brought against him. And he was reincarcerated. I think he's getting out at the end of this year. So I personally haven't talked to Arnaldo since the sentencing, um, but I have talked to Chris, I have talked to Alejandro, and I've talked to Arnaldo's parents who live in Mexico. Um, they've at, and we had, I know that Arnaldo's doing okay in custody. Good. Um, um, but we haven't personally talked. Um, part of the, I, I will tell you that I'm very big in integrity and following the rules. And one of the rules is as a prosecutor, I can communicate with family members and people involved in my cases, but I can't get involved in their open or other cases. I get it. One, I can't like show that I'm showing any type of favoritism to help them. Right. Um, and two, I try not to, um, I don't want to get involved in messing up the system or whatever else is going on with, with his situation. So I, I think, and he, they understand that. Um, and I, I think that's good. And I care about him and I want him to be okay. Um, but I haven't contacted him since he's been in custody on this new case. But when he gets out, uh, hopefully I'll, I'll reconnect with him. Well, cool. So, hey, listen, um, let's shift gears here a little bit. Um, Let's talk about your fun life. You've got a great wife. You've got kids. Are you um, are you thinking about coaching any of the teams that are uh, their kids? Your kids are going to play on? Yes, one hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> what, uh, what kind of sports are you you going to be coaching? So Jonathan plays soccer. Uh, we were just going to get him into uh, pop Warner football, but this whole thing kind of you know broke out, and and it's like you know just changed everything. He plays t-ball, and so. Um, I'm starting to have a little bit less cases now, um, you know, moving up in the DA's office. So it gives me a little more um, ability to do other things. And so we really were kind of gearing up to this kind of pop Warner, you know, tackle football thing that my son really wanted to do. He really likes, uh, we're big Pittsburgh Steelers fans. So he really likes football. Uh, and That's I'm a cool. Big, I'm a big Nebraska fan. So I like the Huskers. So uh so anyway, so I was going to start, you know, helping with soccer and helping with t-ball, but things kind of fell through. So I'm not yeah. really sure how this year is going to go. But yeah, I, I mean, uh, and then uh, my daughter, she really likes gymnastics and she likes dance. Uh, so, and my wife played softball. She was really good in high school. She played softball. She was really good shortstop. So I bet Lindsay will end up playing some type of sport too. Uh, well, this is my, this, so this is my, what, what I do with my kids, uh, John, hopefully you'll be able to do it too. So I live in Chicago, but I, I usually try to drive the Oregon coast at least once every two years. We get in the suburban, we just start driving. So I'm thinking maybe, uh, hopefully, let's pray together that Nebraska opens up and they have a big season this year and that you get your son and your daughter and you drive to Nebraska, do a little tailgating. Going Wait, to, you know, go to the, you know yeah. what I'm, my kids are right here for a minute. I'm sorry. What's up, guys? That's right. 
You want the you want the water turned off? Okay. Hey, can I can you yeah. can I can you take yeah two take off for a second yeah I'll yeah come right back okay that's no no worries come on guys. Well, we're taking a break here. Um, what's really cool about this interview in my my book is that this guy is a family guy. He's a prosecuting attorney. He's a military guy. This is this is what America produces. I'm telling you, this is this is great. So um, loving this interview, um, and uh, I hope you're liking it too. Thank you, Joe. Sorry about that. Oh, no worries. No worries, John. So listen, yeah. so get, see if you can figure out a way to do that drive all the way to Nebraska, go to a Nebraska Cornhuskers football game. And I think the kid will be hooked on football forever after that. Don't you think so? Yes. No, I've been trying to get um, everybody together to do that. Um, and so I think I would like to have done it this year, but maybe next year. Um, right take them all up there they, they, they'd have a blast and I think you're right that then he's going to be uh totally addicted yeah and then are you and you said you're and then you could probably do a twofer and then go go to you know three rivers yeah go to a Steelers game and then uh this may be Ben's last year I know you may have, you may have to get out there uh, now my son who's 11 was a huge and I think he still is a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan I don't know why either John but he's got all so he had all this stuff in his room, he goes to bed in, in jammies. He's 11 years old, he get in Pittsburgh Steelers jammies. I got taken there too, so we'll see if it works out. This so I went, we went, they played San Diego last year, but you know, Roethlisberger was injured, but we went last year and saw them in San Diego. Not in San Diego, oh. not out here in LA, I forgot, you know, how the Chargers, but it's right Yeah, here. right. Uh, it's at the old soccer stadium. So we went, we saw them there and they, they had a really good time. Um, but I, the kids haven't been to a, a Husker game. I think that last time I saw the Huskers, I think they came out here and played either SC or UCLA, and I went to that game. But yes, I'd love to take them to Lincoln. It's a really nice town, and and, and uh, football Saturdays are great there. Uh, it's a really good family event. So all right, we'll we'll close this up. But I want to, you know, you're a smooth talker, John. I could just tell. But tell me about the smooth talking you did to get your wife to say, hey, listen, I do. What did you, what, um, tell me about the proposal. How did that all work out? Okay. Um, so I never really thought that I'd find somebody that I wanted to marry. Um, I was like a little older, you know, and in so many different places. And uh, I met my wife in court. Uh, it was Department A11, which was the third floor uh, Lancaster Courthouse. She was a bailiff. Uh, I had a case in there. And so um, we had been dating for a couple of years, and uh, we were going to go to Las Vegas. And on the way driving there, uh, you do come close or pass by the Antelope Valley Courthouse. And uh, my friend called me and said, hey, you left a file 
uh, in your office and you need to pick it up because you have a case uh, coming up on Tuesday. And so I told my wife, hey, we let us just stop at the courthouse before we uh, you know, get to Vegas. I got to pick up this file for next week. And she's like, okay. And so we drove to the courthouse and I asked her, hey, you want to just come in with me? And she's like, okay. And so we went up to my office and I acted like I was trying to find this file. And then I called my friend and he said, hey, you got to go into department A11. To, that's where the file's at. And so I had talked to some deputies already and I got the key to the courtroom. It was, it was closed. I think it was, um, uh, there was a, it was a holiday, but it was a Saturday. Uh, and uh, we went down to A11 and she still didn't figure out what I was doing. And uh, <laughs> I'm like looking around for this file. And, you know, finally she's like, where is this file you're talking about? And she turned around and uh, I was down on one knee uh, and I proposed to her in the same uh, courtroom where I met her. Um, and so we definitely had a good trip to Las Vegas. But. How long, how long a pause was, the, was the answer, buddy? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I remember that part. Uh, <laughs> I, didn't know, I didn't know she said yes. So it's like, you, you block all that out. All, anything to do with that, you block out. But, but that's yes awesome. Part, the yes part I remember. So uh, I, so that's great. So you, you so you basically in, got engaged to her in the place you met her. That's right. That's awesome. Well, listen, hey, John, thanks so much for spending time with us. I know you're a busy guy, especially, you know, being a dad and, you know, with, with the double shifts, you and your wife. Listen, we, we, we're all rooting for you, you know, from Chicago, New York, L.A., we're, we're rooting for you. And, and I'm hopeful that your career just every day is just a, a day that is memorable and that you're protecting the, the, the good people of L.A. I appreciate that, Joey. I mean, you, I, I'm really, I really like the podcast. You seem like a great guy. Um, very, very uh, positive and you're a dad. Um, uh, and so I'm really happy that, that we got to meet each other and talk. Um, and thank you so much for uh, all the words of encouragement. It's really, uh, I, I appreciate it um, um, a lot. And uh, um, I don't know what else to say, but I'd be safe. I hope you and your family are safe and hopefully we get through these uh, times and get back to, I guess, normal. I mean, I'd like for that to happen. Oh, you know what? I, I can't, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm so ready to be done with the masks, to be done with the, <laughs> everything. And I, I want everybody to be safe and all that stuff, but I really want to get back to, to watching some baseball, going to some baseball okay. games, you know, going to all that stuff, and then basically right. my, let my kids go back to school. I mean, right. I, 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 you know, I, I'm so ready. And so I hope for your sake, for your family's sake, that you're, you're, and you guys can see each other again. That would be great. Because yes. I know it's this double shift thing. It's just, it's right. brutal, but, but thank okay. you so much. And I'm sure, and we will touch base again, John. You, you, you haven't seen the last of me, buddy. I'm going to catch up with you. That sounds great, Joe. I appreciate it. Hopefully, if you come out here once, we can hook up, um, uh, meet each other down at Hall of Justice or something like that. And um, Well, come out to Chicago. We'll go to a, we'll go to a White Sox I love, game. I love Chicago. So, uh, it's a really nice city. Um, great food. You guys got some great restaurants there. So Yeah, and we got some great – and so the, the basketball used to be really, really great if you saw the last dance, but the um, – but the baseball, the White Sox are really up and coming, man. They're going to be something else. Be, hopefully, they'll be playing baseball this year, so you'll see them. So if, right. if there's never any game, Angels games, and you can check out a White Sox game. Okay. Get out there. That's All right? It. Okay. You take care of yourself. All right. See you, John. 
Thank you for listening to the opening statement with Joe Shannon. You can find us on the internet at shannonlawgroup.com or telephone our office at 312-578-9501. Have a terrific day.